Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, Savage Approach to Personal Finance. This is George Grumbacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, strong and powerful Nicholas Fursley. Nick, are you ready to do this? Yes, sir. Excellent. Let's do this. Nick is a globally recognized leader in the fields of asset ownership, corporate labor law and governance, and the interactive relationship between government fund managers, pension trustees, and civil society. He is the Director General of the World Pensions Council in Paris, very excited to have you on. Nick, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Uh, right. Uh, I'd say, you know, the, the World Pensions Council is a, is a think tank, and it's also an international association of long-term asset owners. So that would be mostly uh, mostly pension fund executives. Um, and and I think the you know what what makes us special is the uh, the focus that uh, you know, we really focus on research, and I'd say research you know some of it is publicly available and that would be what we call primers you know research primers, and we churn out like two dozens of these every year and and uh, they they tackle issues that you know we call it the, the bloody you know the bloody crossroads where finance economics and geopolitics intersect right the the intersection between these uh, three fields and some of the research that we do is not public and that would be you know sort of you know more more longer more tailored work we do specifically uh, for you know governments or, or large public uh, pension funds but uh, uh, we, we like to combine you know research with advocacy so advocacy being you know working on behalf of our members and like I said earlier you know they would be mostly long-term asset owners Politically, what does it mean, you know, advocacy on behalf of our members? You know, we tend to be centrists. So there are some issues where we would be like more sort of, you know, center-right, free market-oriented. So typically that would be issues like, you know, free trade or the fact that, you know, we like to see investors, you know, be, be they be they, you know, be they just, you know, individual savers in Minnesota or, or Arizona or large pension funds. Uh, we like to see investors, you know, allowed to invest freely across borders without bureaucratic hindrances or taxes, you know, limiting their power to save uh, across borders. You know, if you're an American investor, uh, you want to buy, you know, Mexican bonds or Italian uh, shares, you know, we don't, see, we, don't, we don't see why, you know, bureaucrats or regulators or, or, or governments should hinder you in doing so. But at the same time, you know, other issues, other issues, we would take more of a progressive center-left stance. And so, you know, uh, for example, typically that would be, you know, the, the defense defense of, you know, retirees' rights or the, the defense of, you know, workers' rights when it comes to uh, health care and pensions. So you could say that we're centrist because depending on the issue, our perspective would either be, you know, sort of center-right or center-left. So we have, you know, we tend to be fairly pragmatic, I guess. Uh, and, and by pragmatic, I mean that, you know, we can be critical of, of financial markets when we see that, you know, the deck, the deck is rigged against investors, you know, and, and, and so we, there are lots of things happening in, in the financial markets that are inefficiencies or unfair, unfair practices. And the, the fact that we, we, we criticize them doesn't necessarily mean that we're like, you know, socialists or Bolsheviks. On the contrary, when we criticize, you know, financial markets, our perspective is really centrist. And, 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 and so we want 
we want financial markets really to work efficiently and transparently. So our critique is always, hopefully, a positive critique. Got it. Excellent. Well, there's certainly a lot going on in the world right now, and need to take into consideration all the different factors that I know that you're focused on, not just the markets, but the geopolitical risks and all all that all that interesting stuff. And so much so often I think that we fall victim to short term thinking when we really need to be taking a long term look at these really, really important issues. So we'd love to hear about your thoughts on the current situation. What's what's going on? I'd say that I think I, mean, um, I think to try to understand what's going on right now, I think we need to, to take a longer, longer historic view of things, right? So I think you know clearly things are changing. You know the fact that we hear words like you know populism, you know populism, or the fact that you know during the 2015, 2016 uh, presidential cycle, uh, you know the the mere fact that that Bernie Sanders uh, got roughly 40%, you know, of, uh, of the votes in the Democratic primaries and the fact that Donald Trump was eventually elected um, president of the, of the world's, you know, largest economy, that in itself is sending us a strong signal that things are changing, right? And, and these are basically the growth, the growth pains, if you will, of a new era. And, and we are at the very beginning of that of that new era, and you you may want to call it you know to make a long story short you know the the, the geoeconomic era or, or the geoeconomic time. Now, what does it mean? It means that you know uh, the, the the old paradigms uh, with which we you know the, the, our worldview, uh, you know the, the things we believed in when we invested or when we voted for the past you know 30, 40, 60, 70 years those things might not work as well in the future and we may want we may have, we may have to change uh you know our, our, our perspective to a large extent i mean to make a long story short to a large extent the world we live in today was born in the in the late 70s you know sort of early 80s when you had people like 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 ronald reagan who came to power in, in Washington, D.C., and, and Margaret Thatcher came to power in, in London. So that's, you know, precisely 1980, 1981. And what happened then was, you know, what we call the neoliberal revolution. So, you know, to make a long story short, these people invented the, the world we lived in until now. So until the year 2017, they created that word. So if, if we take, you know, two people, from the Reagan administration, who had a huge impact on the world economy, I would pick, you know, two guys. You know, one is Don Reagan, who was uh, chief of staff, and and before becoming the chief of staff uh, of the White House, you know, Don Reagan was for the previous 20 years uh, the CEO of Merrill Lynch, right? And and another guy, another guy who I think was assistant secretary uh, of the Treasury, and then he went on to become secretary of the Treasury. His name was Nicholas Brady. And he's famous uh, for, you know, for having uh, transformed the economies of Latin America by, by, uh, by you know, to use a fancy word, by transforming, you know, the government debt issued by Latin American countries back in the 1980s, transforming them into tradable, uh, tradable uh, investment vehicles, bonds, right? So these two guys, you know, from the Reagan administration, Nicholas Brady and Don Reagan, if you look at their CVs, right? 
you know, if you try to understand their worldview, their outlook, they were both Harvard Business School uh, trained stockbrokers, right? And I think it's very important, you know, to understand that. So the, the world we live in today or the world we lived in from the year 1981 until the year 2017 was to a large extent their creation. Really, you know, Harvard Business School trained equity traders and stockbrokers, right? Right. And so their worldview clearly was, you know, open borders, you know, open borders, free market, free trade, etc. Now, that logic is coming to an end, right? You know, so that they, that gospel, you know, we may, we may want to want to call it, you know, the gospel, the, the gospel of, you know, wave, you know, at every issue, you know, at every social economic problem, you just wave the magic wand of free market economics and open borders and everything will be fine, right? So that's, you know, there's a theological belief in the magic of free market economics applied to each and every social, cultural, economic issue. That logic is coming to an end because of voters, basically. So, so it's not because, you know, I mean, not necessarily because it failed, because basically these policies didn't always fail. So they, they failed sometimes, perhaps because of, you know, poor oversight or poor regulation. And, and they failed sometimes because perhaps they weren't applied smartly and efficiently, right? But anyway, so, so, so sometimes, you know, the, the outcome of, of these policies was positive. Sometimes it was less positive. And, and one of the least positive outcomes of these policies is in the past 15 or 20 years, the average Joe in, you know, in middle America, in Arizona, Minnesota, or in Europe, you know, the average, you know, middle, middle class Joe, uh, basically in the past 20, 20 years, he, he has been a sucker in essence, because the share of wealth, the share of wealth created by that global economy in the past 15, 20 years has been very, very much in favor of highly paid, rich corporate executives, right? So the, the percentage of wealth created by the US economy, the French economy, the German economy in the past 20 years, the percentage at, at the end of every month goes to the pocket of your average, you know, blue collar, white collar worker, that has decreased. And what has increased dramatically in the past 15, 20 years is the percentage of wealth that goes to the pocket of the wealthy. So that would be really the, the C-suite, you know, the C-suite right. senior executives from these big companies. And I think that explains a lot why you see the rise of populism because there is that sudden realization that maybe the game is rigged and maybe the deck is stacked against the average Joe in middle America, right? Got it. So... Speaking about policies, what what impact do you think that quantitative easing coming into an end? How how is that going to impact pensions? How is that going to impact the world economy? That's a good question. I mean, first I w I want to say that you know the fact that quantitative easing is coming to an end finally isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? In itself, and and I think you know I think really that you know the fact that you know that President Trump is uh, is criticizing very harshly. The Federal Reserve, I think that's really, you know, that's really uh, counterproductive, really. Um, so, so, so to make a long story short, um, I think, I think honestly, the fact that we've had quantitative easing for for the past, you know, 
eight, nine, ten years uh, was really a bad thing. And, and, and the consequence of that was what I call financial repression. So that, you know, that, that central banking complacency uh, that, you know, that was started eight, nine years ago when we had, you know, the global financial crisis, it was supposed to be a short term, a short term medication. And, and sadly, that short term medication, you know, lasted practically nine years. And so it, it was abnormally long, right? So, you know, interest rates were kept at artificially low levels over an abnormally long period of time. And, and that was really not a good idea because in the long run, what happened is that we, pun- you know, we globally as a society, we punished long-term holders of government bonds, you know, like, you know, retirees, you know, uh, pension investors. Right. And, and we stole money in a way from the pocket of, you know, old ladies in Minnesota and Arizona, you know, your, your long-term, quiet, patient investor. And we transferred that money to a large extent in the pocket of hedge fund speculators and, you know, venture capital funds in San Francisco and New York, right? So it's, it's really not fair uh, because the consequence, of course, of, you know, keeping interest rates at artificially low levels over long, long periods of time is that we were sending what economists call false asset price signals, right? And so by sending, you know, these false asset price signals, what does it mean? It means like, you know, when you buy, when you buy a high-tech stock, uh, you know, when you buy a Silicon Valley, you know, high-tech, very innovative, very risky stock, right? Uh, if you fail, you should fail, right? Because, you know, you, you made a risky bet, right? And, and, and so, so this is what I mean by asset price signals that, you know, that if you buy a long-term bond issued by the U.S. government, that the risk return profile should be coherent and logical. If you buy a very volatile, risky asset uh, in some, you know, tiny, high-tech niche, you should be not always rewarded, right? Sometimes you should be rewarded for taking risk, but sometimes you should lose the money that you have invested, right? Sure. And, and, and sadly, uh, we sent you know false asset price signals, so we rewarded speculators and we punished long-term investors because these long-term you know savers should have earned on the government bonds that they hold in their portfolios. They should have earned you know four, five, three percent. And they ended up earning zero or zero point five percent. That's that's quantitative easing, right? And so that was really bad, and it had to stop. It had to stop. And so now we're 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 in, we've entered a complicated, difficult period. And you may want to call it, you know, quantitative easing, disentanglement, right? And and, and that phase, you know, that phase could last six months or nine months, and it could be risky and bloody, uh, but it's a price to pay. You know, like. like when we adjust, you know, when we adjust, uh, you know, when your body, when your body is used to using high doses of a very powerful drug, and when the doctor says, okay, you know, uh, listen, George, I'm going to reduce your daily consumption of, of that drug, initially, in the first few days and weeks, you may suffer, right? Sure. And it's exactly what's happening now in the US and, and the world over, you know, because of QE disentanglement, but I think it's a necessary pain. And, and during that period, you know, and, and that, that may last even one year, right? 
that phase may be tough, and, and uh, you know some 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 stock markets may go down for several weeks or several months in a row, but we shouldn't fear that phase in itself, right? Because it's a necessary adjustment mechanism, and you know what? There, there may be there may be buying opportunities. So so if the market is oversold for two or three consecutive months, you know what? You know maybe maybe in January, maybe in February, uh, you could buy some of these blue chips for you know with with a thirty or thirty five percent discount if you are a smart Patient invest, patient investor, right? If you're if you're a day trader or a speculator, you may be punished, and I think it's very it's normal, in a, in a way, to punish you know day traders and, and speculators and to reward patient, risk averse, long term investors. Yeah, that's what we've been talking about is is going beyond that short term thinking and. I, I like the the analogy about uh, about a drug because sometimes we just do need to take our medicine and it may hurt over yeah. the course of a month or two months or three. But long term, it's it's for the health of the patient. In this case, the the world's economy. So well, I appreciate that, George. George, you know, not only the health, also you could say it's for the it's a way it's a way basically of of making financial markets in the long term more transparent and efficient because you know what do we want as a citizen or as investors when we put our money in real estate in downtown phoenix arizona when we buy the shares of a particular company on wall street we want the value of that asset that we're buying to be real right if you have you know quantitative easing for a very long period of time then you end up not knowing you know what's real you know and so so we're like reestablishing price transparency and price stability in the long term nice i like it so nick you are obviously located in western europe but you travel all over the world you're in asia and africa and south america talking to policymakers, and i don't want to miss the opportunity to to find out what those policymakers all over the world are thinking about the policies of president trump yeah, I think it's a great question, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting question because it tells a lot. It reveals a lot not only about the U.S. and and and, and what's going on in Washington D.C. and inside the Beltway, but I think it says a lot of some, not not all, but you know, it says a lot about you know the mindset of some of the and to use a French word, you know, to use a French word, bien pensant. So bien pensant is difficult to translate in English, but I would say you know, bien pensant is sort of you know. Well, you know, well-meaning, you know, pompous, you know, pompous, liberal, you know, pompous, liberal, pontificating, well-meaning, do-gooder, right? Okay. <laughs> so that's bien pensant, you know, it's like orthodox, you know, orthodox, do-gooder, uh, progressive, liberal, you know. So that's bien pensant. And many of these elites, especially in Britain and mainland Europe, are very much bien pensant. And so they have preconceived views about the U.S. And, and many of them think that, you know, apart from, you know, California and, and, and New York and Washington, D.C., you know, many of them think that, that you know, that uh, the American people are really uh, um, illiterate or semi-literate. And, sure. uh, and, and it's really sad because in many ways, uh, President Trump fits their cliche, you know what I mean? So, so, so you know, and, and, and I'm not saying this because I'm critical of President Trump, because I think some of the things, I mean, some of the policy decisions that President Trump took in the past uh, in the past 18 months are actually quite quite good and 
and I, I think they're, they're fairly, you know, commonsensical and, and, and they make sense, right? But I think, you know, the way he behaves sometimes and, and, and the comments he make, they fit, you know, all the cultural stereotypes, right? You know, and, and, and there's a long thread running in European culture from, you know, Matthew Arnold in the 19th century to the novels of, you know, Graham Greene and, and, and uh, the TV shows of uh, John Cleese on the BBC. And, and they view the U.S. as an experiment in modern venality, vulgarity, and Old Testament, you know, <laughs> fanaticism. Right? So for them, it's a nation of snake oil salesmen and, and, and jingoistic nationalists and egomaniacs, right? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so in a way, in a way, sadly, sometimes President Trump fits all these cliches. So there was initially that uh, that notion amongst some policymakers in Western Europe, you know, uh, uh, that very wrong notion that, you know, the, the new American president would be easy to manipulate, right? Because he was vain, egomaniac, and jingoistic. And I think there was even a leaked memo from, you know, the from the British or English equivalent of the, the CIA that, w- that was explaining to the British prime minister how they could exploit uh, Donald Trump's, you know, parochial naivete and vulgar instincts, and I'm, I'm quoting the leaked memo. <laughs> sure. And, and I think, you know, these these European experts were completely wrong, uh, you know, because, you know, of course, they totally ignored uh, the, the geoeconomic lessons of history. And, and so what does it mean, geoeconomic lessons? It means, like, someone like Donald J. Trump, with all his faults, in many ways, uh, his worldview is very similar to that of the leadership of nations like China or Singapore. And so you may want to call it a geoeconomic worldview. And, and what does it mean, geoeconomic? It means that, that, that you, combine, you combine basically economics, finance, with long-term military strategy, right? And so you really think of the world as a chessboard, right? And so in countries like Singapore, Taiwan, China, they've always had that aggressive, you know, uh, geoeconomic strategic mindset, right? And in the U.S., you know, in the U.S. and Western Europe, we have kind of, you know, gone soft. So, so in the U.S. And, and Western Europe, we've lost that tough uh, geoeconomic, you know, uh, perspective, you know. And, and I think what's really good about President Trump, with once again with all his faults, at least you know he understands that you know when you're dealing with countries like Iran, uh, when you're negotiating with, uh, uh, you know, a trade agreement with a country like China, you shouldn't be naive and you shouldn't believe that, you know, by waving the magic wand of free trade and open borders, you will resolve all your issues. And and, and I think the, the policies that, you know, President Trump uh um, are per- the policies the policies is pursuing. You could call them, you know, realistic. You know, maybe maybe aggressively realistic, cynically realistic. But at least I think you know, at least it's based on something that is real. That you know, we're entering a new era, and, and because we're entering a new era, where the world will be a tougher world, uh, more aggressive. I think a little bit, a little bit of selfishness, right? A little bit of cynicism, of realism from the part of policymakers, isn't always bad. You know, like I think realism is good, and so I think you know what what uh, you know what's good about President Trump is that you know 
once again, you know, I believe in free trade. So, uh, um, I mean, I don't support, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't, don't support, you know, uh, closed borders. I don't support, you know, building a wall or, you know, I, I don't support, you know, I, I don't support protectionism, right? I, I don't believe that protectionism is good. But at the same time, I don't believe that we should be naive when we discuss trade policy with Asian or policymakers. And I think, you know, what's good about President Trump is, you know, that there were a lot of things going on uh, in the relationship between China and uh, and the U.S., notably when it comes to the respect of copyrights, right? And a lot of products that we sell, we Europeans and Americans, we sell to China are services, including, you know, softwares. And there is a problem in China of, you know, complacency when it comes to piracy and copyright infringement, right? I've so heard I think, that. <laughs> yeah, you know, by being tough with the Chinese, you know, Minister of Commerce, uh, it doesn't mean that you're racist. It doesn't mean that you're xenophobic. It doesn't mean that you're anti-Chinese. It means that you want free trade to be fair, right? And I think you know, from that perspective, you know, what we what what you know what liberal journalists may call the animal instinct of the White House, you know, that animal instinct may not be that bad in the long term. Well, that's, that's great. I appreciate you sharing that. It's an, it's always interesting to know what uh, what folks around the world are, are are thinking of the president. So, well, Nick, Savage Nation is ready for your difference making tip. What do you have for them? You know, I would tell investors uh, to be skeptical of what they hear and to do their, their homework. And, and when I say do their homework, is you know you know keep on reading. You know, keep on reading the the the, the research that your stockbroker send you. It's very important, you know, to read the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times every day, and to look at, you know, the, these stockbroking reports. But, you know, go beyond, go beyond just, you know, um, investment tips and the daily routine of, you know, stockbroking research. Um, and that's what I call it, once, once again, the geoeconomic mindset. So, you know, uh, look at country risk, you know, look at geopolitics, because, What's happening in terms, you know, of, uh, of country risk, military issues, geopolitics in the future will be as important, if not more, for the success of your portfolio as, you know, just traditional, you know, Wall Street investment tips. And, uh, and I think, you know, being skeptical about, you know, what experts say, trying to build your own judgment is key. And... I would say, you know, there's only one, you know, one, one piece of wisdom that I can give uh, people is really, uh, it's a French word, uh, it's, you know, uh, diversification, right? So, so always keep in mind that it's very risky to put more than 20, 30% of your money in a single asset or in a single country or in a single share, you know, try as much as you can to diversify and always keep always keep in your portfolio some dry powder. So always keep, you know, it helps to have in your portfolio 15, 20, 22% of your money in cash or in quasi-cash in very short-term, you know, money market instruments because you may need that dry powder. So if there is a big market correction, which can happen once again, if, if things go bad, if, if, if all of a sudden, you know, in the next three, four months, you know, stock markets at a certain point lose 20, 30% of their value, the fact that you have 20% of dry powder in your pocket 
allows you to seize the opportunity when it happens and to buy low. I love it. That is great stuff. That definitely gets a come on. Come on. And Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? So I'd, I'd say it's, it's kind of linked to what I said earlier, right? So, um, so you could say that uh, I like, you know, multidisciplinarity uh, to use a fancy word. So what does it mean? I think, you know, even if you're a financial expert or an economic expert, I think it's, it's very useful to read books about, you know, anthropo- anthropology, sociology, history, because there's a lot of wisdom that you can apply to financial market and economic policymaking uh, simply by reading uh, about, you know, the history of England in the Middle Ages or the history of the U.S. in the 19th century. I think, I think, I think it's really sad that today when, when, you know, when, when young people go to business school, we don't teach them anymore, you know, about, you know, Roman, Greek, classics, history, uh, anthropology, because I think these these fields, uh, I think if you're, if you're a well-rounded investor or economic expert, you need always to take a long view. And, and the only way you can take a very long view to assess, you know, the, the short-term economic circumstances we live in today is to have that long historic perspective. And I think if you look at, you know, U.S., U.S. CEOs or uh, or U.S. presidents, I think you know the, the the most brilliant among them, and I have in mind you know Theodore Roosevelt, for example. They spent half their time reading history books, and I think it's it, you know that's really something which is lacking today. So that that you know historic, geopolitical, you know history, geography are extremely important, and I think uh, studying the classics and reading the classics will make you a better investor. Well, I think that is also awesome advice right there. So, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Nick your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Thank you again, Nick. Thank you, George. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing, leave us a review, and definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on.